It's good. We're in the, a series on the book of Hebrews. Who's been enjoying Hebrews? Oh, I, well, I thought maybe more of you might have been. <laughs> I've been loving Hebrews. Hebrews is just this incredible letter. And uh, today we're coming to what I'm calling a MasterChef moment. Any MasterChef fans here? Well, I am. And uh, the thing I, I love about MasterChef is that you have each episode, you know, they get their ingredients and they, they have the ingredients on the table. Like the whole episode's about preparing the ingredients and chopping the ingredients and putting it all together. And then there's the hero of the dish. They always use that word hero. It's hilarious. Uh, the hero of the dish. And that's like, that's what it's all about. It's, it's singing. All the other ingredients are there to sing the song of the hero of the dish. And then what happens is, is they, uh, they put it all together. They plate it all up. And that's always a stress. And then after the plating, they cover it with a cloche. And a cloche is one of those metal loopy things. And they put it on top and then they bring it into the room and they're about to present it and all their hard work, everything that they've just done, all the tears, because there's always tears. And then they have this moment where they say, reveal. Here's the dish. Here's what it's all about. And this is what we come to in Hebrews because the author has been preparing all the different ingredients of his theological thesis on why Jesus. And he's been going back through the Old Testament. He's been unpacking you know, the tabernacle and angels and Moses and the promised land. It's this incredible, detailed, you know, emotive discussion and then it all comes to this moment, this big reveal moment where it's plated up and he's like, okay, audience, okay, world, here's what it's all about. Here's the hero. And he reveals this incredible proclamation about the nature of God's promise, God's intention in creation, about the way in which God wants to pour out blessing and favour upon his people. And the hero that lies beneath it all is faith. Faith. It's amazing. So let's go there now. Hebrews 11 and 12. We're going to focus primarily on uh, the beginning of 11 and the beginning of 12. Next week, we'll talk a bit more about 12. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 from chapter 11. And then we'll jump over to chapter 12 and read the first three verses there. Reading from the NIV. Who's with me? Great. Now, faith. Everyone say faith. Is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Who's heard that before? Who can quote that with their eyes closed and a mouth full of marbles? Probably most of us. It's one of these famous passages in Scripture. But interestingly, because we hear it so much, so often the meaning of it is lost. This is what the ancients were commended for. Oh, there's a plenty of meat on that bone right there. Faith is what the ancients were commended for, not their work. Chapter 12. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you would not grow weary and lose 
heart. What a word. God, speak to us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I read this, you can't help but hear the echo of of, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, can you? It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's this incredible, beautiful, powerful word. But here's what we need to do. Because we read this through a post-Reformation Western lens. We read this from 2020. Martin Luther's done his thing. All the reformers have done their thing. We've heard by grace, through faith, a billion times. It's nothing new to us. It's nothing spectacular or nothing unfamiliar to us. And so we've lost the wow in this moment. But put, put your first century Hebrew Christian lens on this. The people who this author's writing to. These people who have, uh, been, have grown up in the Jewish faith and who in this moment, in hearing the gospel, in hearing Christ, have left that Jewish faith, have left this uh, religious, ritualistic pursuit and have said, I, I am choosing to recognise that all the promises of God, all the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Christ. And so they've taken this big leap and in so doing have been uh, rejected by family, they've been disowned by friends, they're suffering torture, they're suffering persecution. Some have died on account of this very faith. Their lives have not got better Their lives have got worse. They are living in a tremendously difficult time and they're asking, is it worth it? Is Jesus worth this? Like this faith, is it actually true? Is it actually something that I should hold on to? Or can I just forsake this and go back to Judaism where I'm not going to get, where I'm not going to suffer for what I believe? And so they've got this confronting them. They're teetering on the edge. And that's the context that this author writes. And he writes this incredible exegetical thesis of the Old Testament saying, guys, all of it's fulfilled. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to the tabernacle. He is the promised rest. He said, this is who Jesus is. And it's all the ingredients of that Old Testament. And then at the end, he says, the reason Jesus is worth it is because all of it, all the promises of God, everything that we've talked about is found by grace through faith. In Christ. He's declaring that faith, not works, is the currency of God's kingdom. And it's not a new thing. It's something that always has been. And he's going to take us there in a moment. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And it was so profoundly relevant to them in that moment because it was the encouragement that they needed. But here's the other thing. It's actually super relevant to us right here, right now, in the world in which we live. It's powerfully relevant because we are living in crazy times. We are living in a fascinating time in history. Would you agree with me? It's a very, very interesting time. All you have to do is flick on the news and you're like, what is going on in our world right now? It's a fascinating time in history and I think, what makes it so fascinating is that the rise of mainstream media, the rise, particularly the rise of social media, has, has literally changed the current of our culture. 
where once upon a time, we sought wisdom through people who had studied. We, we recognised the authority of a voice based on its, uh, its credited knowledge, based on the fact that its argument was logical and, and well laid out and made sense. Not anymore. Now everyone's opinion is valid. Like we live in the age of the influencer now. Where actually the, the authority of your voice has nothing to do with your intellect. The authority of your voice has nothing to do with your experience. The authority of your voice has nothing to do with your certified uh, capacity to speak into that space. The authority of your voice has everything to do with the number of people who like what you say. It's ridiculous. Someone could get on there and say whatever the heck they wanted to say and people are like, oh, wow, that's really profound. You're like, I read that on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> Just because you read something on the internet doesn't make it true. Just because someone speaks doesn't mean that they have authority to speak. Not all opinions are valid, but the world we live in says that. And so that's why this is so incredible is because we are living in an age of confusion. We're living in this, this age where in the midst of all that's going on and the sensationalism and the manipulation, it, truth can be very difficult to find. It can be very difficult to articulate. It can be very difficult to lay hold of because how do we determine what is and what isn't true, what is and what isn't right? And at the heart of it all is actually this uh, temptation that has come against humanity from the very beginning of creation, which is that... Life is about the pursuit of self and self-gratification. So we're living in this, this time where we have this agenda effectively to erode or to remove actually objective truth that something is genuinely real. And instead we're being told that actually truth is, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Your truth is your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Let's not confront it. Let's not talk about it. You do you. I do me. Life is good. And the pursuit is me. Whatever makes me happy. But here's the fascinating thing. The further we go down that rabbit hole, look at our society right now. The further we go down that rabbit hole, what are we finding? The opposite of the very things we're seeking. What we think brings bringing us freedom is imprisoning us. What we think is going to bring us joy is bringing a deep sense of unrest. What we think is bringing us hope is destroying us. And you just have to look at the statistics right now around mental health, around suicide, around just what our world is doing to itself. And you can see that this pursuit is literally killing us. The more we pursue it, the more lost we become. And this is why this word is so powerful. Because what this word is saying is, no, 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 you're not going to find this stuff in the pursuit of self. This stuff is found by grace. It's a gift of God through faith in Christ. Truth has a name and that name is Jesus. Truth is a person. Truth is something we can tangibly hold on to. And that's what he's saying. He's saying we hold on to that truth by faith. By faith. So we're going to unpack this a little bit because what the author does here is he, he starts off after all this stuff, he's going to define what faith is and then he's going to explain 
a few characteristics of the nature of faith. And I'm going to confess, I've got a heck of a lot of notes here, and we're not going to get through all of them, uh, but we'll have a crack and we'll see where God leads us. So what is faith? What does the author say faith is? Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Those of you who are familiar with the book of James would know that James says you believe in God and good. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what the author is trying to get us to see is that faith is not just a recognition that God is real. Faith is a heck of a lot more than just going, yep, God's real. I believe in God. Do you? What is it? Like, what's the difference between that and faith? This faith that Hebrews is talking about. And the answer is in these crazy uh, couple of Greek words. Firstly, faith. The word faith is this Greek word, pistis. Everyone say pistis. You're not swearing. This Greek word, pistis, it's the same word that we see all throughout the New Testament when they're talking about this word, faith. And so he says, this word, pistis, faith, is being sure. And that, that word, being sure there, is the word hypostasis. Everyone say hypostasis. And what it means, hypostasis means, hypo means below, and stasis means equilibrium, right? And so hypostasis is speaking to this, this tangible, something that you can grab. It's talking to a thing of substance that exists below everything else and gives it stability. A great illustration is the foundation of a house. It is sure, it is stable, but it is, it is tangible. It's there. It's, you can grasp it. So faith is actually this sure confidence in the substance that holds us. Faith is having a resolute confidence in, it says, in the hope that we have. Now, what's the hope that we have? Simon talked about it last week for those who are here, the promises of God. And the promises of God are found in Christ. So faith is a sure, certain, resolute, holding on to Christ because he is immovable and he is unshakable and he is true. And we can actually grasp him, which we're going to get to in a minute. So this is what faith is. It's this immovable confidence in Christ. But then there's another word which is fascinating when it says, and certain of what we do not see. That word certain is the Greek word elenkos. Everyone say elenkos. Any Greeks in the house, I may have pronounced that wrong. But an elenkos... I'm going to read this to you. This is such a profound thing. See, elenkos means this. It means having a conviction that is not static, but it is something that is lively and active. So it's not just a state of immovable dogmatism. Like It's not just me going, well, I just believe this. No, there's something about the conviction of faith which will cause us to respond. It leads to action. It, it compels us because the foundation is under the house. I will walk in that house because there is certainty and surety that that house will not collapse. If there wasn't that undergirding, if there wasn't that foundation, I'm not walking in that house. I'm not walking there because if I walk in there, who knows when it's going to fall on me? And this is what we have, this is faith. It's such certainty and hope in Christ 
because of what he has done, that it will compel us to actually respond and our lives will look different to what they looked before. That's faith. What a definition. But then he goes on and he says, there's all these attributes of faith that, that we need to have a look at here. And so we're going to run through a few of them. The first thing that we see, how are we going? Are we good? You with me? Fantastic. Faith pleases God. In fact, more than that, faith actually receives God's commendation and reward. Now, some of you, you can, you can smell prosperity doctrine in the air and you don't like it. You're like, are you, saying, are you saying what I think you're saying, Dave? Are you saying that by faith I can have the reward of God? I am saying you have the reward of God, but it's not prosperity doctrine and we're going to get there in a minute. But watch this. Let's go to verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11. Verse 5 and 6. So it's by faith, by faith. And he says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what we see is that faith is actually the means through which we please God. Faith is actually the means through which we enter into the commendation and reward of God. And friends, this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that the, that the hearers here are like, Whoa, that's fantastic. I never knew. Like God didn't just pluck this out of the air. No, it's clear from this that this is actually something that has existed from the very beginning of creation. Look at it. Verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And then the next 39 verses, the author of Hebrews will run through person after person after person after person through all of history who pleased God by faith. And what he's saying here is, friends, remember all the shadows we've just talked about? Remember how the tabernacle pointed to Jesus? Remember how the promised land pointed to Jesus? Remember how Moses pointed to Jesus? What he's saying is faith has always been there. God put this in there from the beginning so that we would know that in the midst of all the religious system and all the works, the way in which I'm going to bring about my promises to my people is through faith by grace. It's the work of God and the invitation is therefore live by faith because that's what pleases me. Not your works, not your intellect, not your capacity, not how well you serve at church. No, no, it's faith that pleases God and receives that commendation and reward. It's not new, but it's the attribute of faith that has been there from the beginning of time. And then the second thing we see is this. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. God has not left us without witness. But there's a popular school of thought that, hey, faith, faith is just you just jumping into the dark. And it, act, it actually comes from this guy called Pascal. Can I talk philosophy for a second? Who's up for philosophy on a Sunday morning? 
So it comes from this guy called Pascal, who was a, a theologian and a philosopher, and he was a brilliant man. And he proposed this, uh, what, what is called Pascal's wager, right? And what he says effectively is that either God is or isn't. And there's no way we can know. It's like fundamentally says there's no way we can know if God is real or God isn't real. So let's look at the consequences of the bet. And we'll put this up there now. And basically what he says is that if God exists, there's two things we can do. We can either believe in him or choose not to believe in him. Now, if God exists and we choose to bet on God, well, then we've got a great reward. It's pretty awesome. But if God exists and we choose to bet against him, then we're in trouble. There's a fairly large consequence for that. And then he goes on and he weighs, he says, but if God exists and we choose to bet, uh, if, if God doesn't exist, sorry, and we choose to bet on him and we say, well, God exists, but even if he doesn't, what do we lose? Nothing. You haven't lost anything. You still lived your life. And he goes, and, there, and so therefore, if God doesn't exist and you bet against him, you've also lost nothing. So he proposed this wager. He's like, fundamentally, in light of all of this, why would you not just bet on God? Why would you not just go, hey, like God's worth it. So whether you can see him, like, you know, we'll never know. So just bet on him. Like, it was just like, you might as well just choose God because it's far better to choose God than not choose God. And so it was this idea based on this premise that we'll never actually know. But fundamentally, it's wrong. Because faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is not just a random guess on a God who we cannot know. It's the opposite of that because it's clear that faith is a response to the revealed truth. We can know. That's the whole point of faith, that the unseen God has revealed himself to humanity so that we can know and be known. And so we're not just leaping blindly into the dark. No, we have this incredible substance, a foundation of a building on which we stand. That's what faith is all about. First, no, John chapter 1 puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now watch this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen. Somebody say seen. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, faith is the illumination by the Holy Spirit of the reality of Christ in our hearts. And if we go to 2 Corinthians 4, we see this idea that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that we can't see. But when the Spirit of God comes and that veil falls, no longer can we no longer see, but our eye, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our spirit are open and we see. We see the glory of God in Christ. It's this substance that we hold on to and it changes everything. Everything. It's glorious. It's magnificent. 
And it's sure and it's true. C.S. Lewis, oh, I love this quote. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let that sit on you for a second. I sat on that for about three days this week. I'm so, It's the, the sun, the sun is self-revealing. The only reason we see the sun is because the sun enables us, gives the very light by which we can see it. It's extraordinary. And this is true of God. God has revealed himself in the sun. And because God has revealed himself, we have a substance to hold on to. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. One more quote. John Piper says it this way. Faith is not a heroic step through the door of the unknown. It is a humble, happy sight of God's self-authenticating glory. That's our faith. And gee, it is sure. Third point. Friends, faith is a communal pursuit. Faith is a communal pursuit. Let's jump over. Let's jump over. Because what the author's just done through chapter 11, he's just gone through all of these witnesses. Like he wants us to see, look at all the witnesses. Look at all the witnesses. Look at the evidence of what God has done. It's not a blind leap. Witness, witness, witness. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, by faith. He's like, come on, there's a witness there. It's not a blind leap. And then he gets to chapter 12 and says, therefore, since we, someone say we, are surrounded by such a great cloud of these witnesses of which Christ is the centre. Let us, someone say us. And he goes on and on. Friends, faith is a communal pursuit. We live in an individualistic society where everyone's talking about my faith journey. My faith journey. And and this person's, well, my faith journey is this. I see God this way. And this person's like, well, I see God that way. I'm not degrading or or talking down to the fact that God loves you as the individual. He sees you as the individual. He loves you as the individual. Yes, all of that is true. But we've pushed so far down that line that we forgot the fact that actually Christ came to establish his church. He came to bring a church, to bring a people. Israel was a people. God's promises to a people. Faith is a communal thing. It is a thing that enlightens the heart of the individual and draws us into a place of community. It's we, not me. It's we. And it's a powerful, wonderful thing because we need to understand in all of this that Jesus is coming back for his church. I, like in the next couple of months, I'm marrying a few different people from within this church community. I love marriage. Marriage is a wonderful thing. And you know, Jesus talks about the church as his bride. And you know, the Bible talks about the fact that Jesus is the head of the church and the church is his body. And I had this thought, if I was standing, if I was standing up there like here and I'm going through the vows, we've got this lovely lady standing here and this lovely gentleman standing here and they're looking lovingly into each other's eyes. And they're about to cast their vows. And I say to the, to the bloke, you know, are you, will you? Yes, yes, of course I will. And I say to the lady, will you? And she looks at me and goes, well, I, I say yes to his head. But the body, eh. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit wholeheartedly to his head. I love his head. His head's awesome. The body, not so sure about. So I'm not covenanting with the body. You can't do it. It's the weirdest thought, but that's what we do. That's exactly what we do when we say, yes, Jesus, no church. There's this movement, yes, Jesus, but church, no, it's not for me. You can't do that. You can't sever a piece of the body from the head and still be attached to the head. If we sever ourselves from the body, we are severed from the head and the head is the one which brings faith and causes faith and finishes faith and therefore we'll find that we're on the outer and eventually that faith will grow cold. But it's in uniting to the body that we're connected to the head. And we thrive in the things that God has for us. Now, that can look like a lot of different things. That can look like being a part of a big church or a little church, a house church. It can look like being in a loud church, a quiet church, a contemplative church. There's so many different gatherings for all different types of people. That's the beauty of the body. But the fundamental thing we need to remember is don't sever yourself from the body. Be in community because it's communal. Faith is communal. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another all the more. And that's when we come to this next point. Why? Why is it so important? One, because he's ahead. Two, because faith is a race and that race can be hard. Let's keep reading. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy, hang on, I've gone too far. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run. Faith is a race and that race can be difficult. That race can be hard. It's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. Like 18 months ago, I ran a marathon. And when I started that race, I felt fantastic. Felt good. I'm running with our treasurer. And he's like, I reckon we could pick up the pace, mate. And I'm like, you just back off there, Chachi, because we've got a long way to go. And he's like, no, I feel good. So we upped the pace. I tell you what, by kilometre 27, I did not feel like I felt like at kilometre one. And here's what happens. God is much more interested in the way we finish than the way we start. Because a lot of people start and they're full of fire. Then they sever themselves from the head. And before we know it, they're struggling to the finish. Guys, when I ran that marathon, it was hard. It was really, really difficult. And I've done a stack of training leading up to that because we need to train for the race. But it was difficult. Like I got about 27 Ks in, I got a bit of runner's gut. For those of you who know runner's gut, it basically means that your gut start churning and you're looking for a place to stop. So I've got runner's gut going on. Then I looked down, I was chafing so hard because I had these brand new shorts that my beautiful wife had bought me to run in and they were small and I forgot to put my skins on. So I chafed on my legs so much. I've got blood pouring down my legs. And so I'm running along, I'm bleeding. I've got runner's gut. And I say to my mate who knew that I was struggling in the guts, I'm like, bro. And he goes, don't you dare look down. Because he thought it wasn't blood. He thought it might have been a byproduct of the runner's gut. As I'm running along and he's like, what the heck is going on there? And I'm like, no, no, that's not that. That's blood. And he's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and so we're running along and I'm struggling. I'm struggling like everything's going wrong. But this is true for the race of faith. 
And if I did not have him running next to me, if I did not have the great cloud of witnesses seeing me struggle, and be like, come on, man, you've got this. You've got this. Remember your training. Keep going. You can do it. Him speaking to my life. I would not have made it to the end. But because he was with me, because they were with me, because everyone was spurring me on. And then you get to that point where you fix your eyes on the prize and you see the crowd. And you're like, ah, and you're running all the way to the end. Like, I'm a hero. But it's not. It's just the joy of finishing the race despite the difficulty. Faith is a race and that race can be hard. And this is where we straight away confront the prosperity doctrine, because if you read chapter 11, and particularly the last eight verses of chapter 11, I don't understand how anyone can read that and get out of that health, wealth, prosperity in this life. Guaranteed. Because, yes, faith pleases God. Yes, God God commends it. Yes, God rewards it. And for some people, there is great, Physical, material, wonderful blessing in that space. For some, conquered kingdoms. For some, uh, passed through the Red Sea. For some, the walls of Jericho fell. You know, for some, that administered justice and gained what was promised and shut the mouths of lions and it's awesome. And you're like, yeah, that's my kind of God. I want to hear that preached every single week. Come on. And you're like, yeah, I'm claiming it in Jesus' name. But then what we forget is that it says, uh, and even others raised with but then it says, listen to this, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. It says, some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in prison. Some were stoned, some were sawed in two. The, the world wasn't worthy of them, it says. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes on the ground, but they were commended for their faith. And none of them received what was promised in this earth, but God had planned something better so that together they would be made perfect. Friends, the promise of God is that there is a blessing and there is a reward that comes through faith, and it might look like the physical in this life for you, but if God has done that for you, it's for the whole purpose of blessing someone else. And it doesn't mean you're more highly favoured than the person who is struggling because that person is still blessed with a treasure that far outweighs any earthly treasure that the world could ever give. It's the treasure of faith, the inheritance of heaven, this great reward that comes from Christ and Christ alone. And when we get there, we realise all the earthly stuff is just nonsense. It's all blown away. It's just the dust of the earth. What matters is Christ and Christ crucified and Christ glorified. That's our reward. And that's the reward of faith. God, it's a good reward. It's a glorious, wonderful, powerful reward. Faith is a race and the race can be hard but it's worth it for the reward. And what is that reward? Verse five, the prize is Christ. Why do we pursue? Because the reward is Christ. Band, you can come up as we need to close. But watch this, verse, let's go from verse two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author 
and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, oh, the joy. He suffered everything because he had a joy in his heart which was seeing you and me, us together before the throne of God without condemnation. Praising Jesus. That was his joy. And he endured the cross and he scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Faith is a race and the race can be very difficult. So consider him. Fix your eyes on the glorious prize, which is not a crown. It's Christ. Every crown. The greatest reward we're going to have in heaven is taking off our crowns and putting them at the feet of Jesus. Oh, I can't wait for that day to take it and go, oh, Jesus, look what you've given me. Like this beautiful inheritance, this relationship, paradise, Eden, walking with God, tabernacling with God. That's the reward. And when we fix our eyes on Him, when we keep our eyes on Him, then no matter what's going on around us, despite the troubles and the hardships and all the persecution which may come our way, despite businesses struggling, struggles in my family, struggles in my finances, whatever it might be, I have a great reward who I'm running to. And we see this great cloud of witnesses. And at the centre of the cloud is Christ himself. That's what the witness is supposed to point to. There's Jesus saying, come on, come on, keep running, keep running. Here I am, I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. And then more than that, the glory of the gospel is not only is he standing at the end, calling us home by his spirit, he's in the race, arm around us, running with us. That deserves a hallelujah. He's running with us. He's drawing us all the way to the end in the midst of the trouble. And the problem that we have is so often we're looking to the left. We're looking to the right. We're looking at the chafing. We're looking at the guts. We're looking at everything that's struggling. And we lose our focus. And as we lose our focus, our faith begins to crumble. But if we would just fix our eyes on the only one who actually matters, we will lift our heads. You know, it says that beautiful passage, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise on wings of eagles. What will they do? They will run and not grow weary. It is not in my striving that I earn the favour of God. He is the author and the perfecter. He's the one who gives faith. He's the one who strengthens faith. He's the one. He's the one. In case you've missed it from Hebrews so far, can I say it again? It's all about Jesus. This whole glorious, wonderful word is summed up in one word, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he's drawing us to himself. And he's saying, fix your eyes on me. So often faith and service and that desire to follow God ends up becoming a duty. 
And I'll tell you why it becomes a duty is because we've lost our focus. And when we have our focus, it's a delight to offer our lives as a living sacrifice is no, it's not a duty. It's a delight. It's the greatest delight. It's the delight of our souls. Why? Because we're considering him who endured such opposition from sinful men. He has done so much more and been through so much more. He left the glory of heaven and took on flesh. And friends, I want you to understand that the second person of the Trinity, Spirit, took on flesh, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in resurrected flesh for all eternity with nail-pierced hands for all eternity. He's there. That's what He did for us. The angels of heaven, it says in Revelation, are, they just can't believe it. They sit before the Lamb who was slain and they're like, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. Because their eyes are on Him and He's the delight of their soul and my great desire for my life is that that would never change, that I would not allow the world to shift my gaze, but I would keep my eyes on Him. And friends, that's why I need my brothers and sisters and so do you. Because when you run alone, it's so easy to look away. We all do it because we're human. Don't you sit there and say, yes, I've always got my eyes on Jesus. You will look away because it's part of who we are. I do it all the time. But that's why I need my brothers and sisters because they're constantly reminding me, look at him. He's your sustainer. He's your delight. He's your perfecter. He's your glory. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Stand to your feet. Jesus, we love you. Father, I just the encouragement from this letter is just stirring within me to pray for my brothers and sisters who are feeling weary and growing tired and cold. Father, we pray today for a fresh vision of Jesus. Father, we pray today for a renewed enthusiasm to participate in the body there's always going to be people we don't like and things we don't enjoy but it's in connecting to the body that we're connected to the head Father I just pray right now for the power of your spirit just to come and refresh and renew some souls in this place and if that's you right now you just, you just are like I'm feeling weary and dry I just want to invite, I'm not even going to look with my eyes, I'm keeping them close. I just want you to pop your hand up where you are and just say, yes, Lord, I just want that fresh vision of Jesus. Lord, I just pray for each and every one of these people. Just come and stir, come and move, Lord. Come and whisper your love. May they know that their faith is not 
is not resting on tender hooks. No, their faith is solid and sure in the finished work of Christ. You're seated in glory and calling us home. So Lord, let us run with perseverance. Let us run with eyes firmly fixed on you. Brother and sister, arm in arm, champion each other. And if one of us stumbles and falls, it is not our duty to look at them with shame and to kick them to the curb and say, how dare you stumble? Whoa, no. May that never be said of us. No, it is our job, our duty, our delight to pick them up and say, look to him. Look what he went through for you. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. Come on. Keep running. It doesn't matter. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just fall in his direction. His, his blood covers you. It's enough for you. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. So Lord, fix our gaze, fix our vision. Thank you for all that you have been through to give us a sure and certain hope. We love you, Lord. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.